Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Spar Wars. Marina Hyde tracks the never-ending demolition of Captain Tom's legacy. Killian Murphy on Oppenheimer, sex scenes and self-doubt. And forget the blowout wedding. Couples explain how they tied the knot on a budget. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, just when you thought the Captain Tom story couldn't get weirder, Central Bedfordshire Council has ordered a spa complex built in connection with his foundation to be torn down, much to the delight of charity naysayers, points out Marina Hyde. Read by Emma Stannard. To the Captain Tom Spa Complex where we might imagine panpipe versions of Vera Lynn classics wafting through the air, enveloping select visitors like a really luxurious waffle-weave robe. Perhaps there's some kind of water feature bubbling soothingly with a clear liquid. Captain Sir Tom's London dry gin? While beyond a notional he-walked-so-you-could-chill jacuzzi lies an indoor pool, 100 laps mandatory and a legacy-guarding wellness experience without compare in the central Bedfordshire area. If you're thinking, what did I just read? It probably won't be the first time, with the long-tailed story of the former army captain who, at the age of 99, walked up and down his garden to raise money for NHS charities during the early stages of the pandemic, and with this small act of kindness went stratospheric. Donations totaling £39 million followed, as did a number one single, a knighthood, a range of branded products from lunchboxes to wine calendars, and now an active investigation by the Charity Commission into concerns the family personally profited from his name, and a planning dispute involving his daughter, Hannah Ingram Moore, and her local council, 
More on that in due course. The Captain Tom Foundation last week stopped taking money from donors. Selecting the weirdest moment of the Captain Tom phenom is a task that slips away from you the second you think you've got a hold on it. Just when you decide that it was the GQ cover, you suddenly remember that at one point the online retailer Redbubble was selling a Captain Tom miniskirt. A product that was, I suppose, for all its WTFery, quite tame when you consider that this was the site that had also previously sold Schindler's List leggings. Then you think, no, no, it was the photo with Cliff Richard and Russ Abbott during what was billed as the then 100-year-old's dream holiday with the family to Barbados, a trip shortly after which Captain Tom contracted pneumonia and subsequently COVID, from which he died. But that's before you remember that Wayne and Colleen Rooney's son, Clay, went as Captain Tom to World Book Day in 2021 complete with homemade, tinfoil-wrapped walking frame and an itchy moustache, Colleen told her Instagram followers, he wasn't too happy about. Like I say, you can't play favourites with this stuff. As for the proprietor of a new pool and spa complex built in obscure connection with Captain Tom's charitable foundation, perhaps it's not such a marmalade dropper of a reveal to learn that it's Captain Tom's daughter's account. Discussing how their lives have changed beyond recognition since her father's walk, Ms Ingram Moore is fond of talking of the sliding doors of fate. Regrettably, it is with the sliding doors of her spa complex that we must concern ourselves today, though they are, of course, merely one feature of the large building erected in her garden. A planning application was submitted in Hannah and her husband's name, Though the design and access and heritage statement referenced the Captain Tom Foundation, explaining the annex was urgently needed for presentations and memorabilia. The charity's independent trustees last week said they knew nothing about this and would not have authorised it. In any case, the structure that ended up being erected, reportedly to the consternation of many of her neighbours, deviated from this noble aim in that it is actually an indoor pool house of a different design and size to the building on the planning application that also contains changing rooms and bathrooms and maybe a discreet charity office nook? We don't know at this stage. What we do know is that Central Bedfordshire Council has taken issue with the largely unauthorised new structure and ordered the Ingram Moors to tear it down a command that my brain cannot read without hearing it delivered in the style of Ronald Reagan's Berlin speech. Mr Gorbachev, tear down this spa complex. So what are we dealing with as far as the misfortune-prone Ms Ingram Moore is concerned? Looks-wise, she has a touch of that manipulative liability Janice Soprano, though the series of stories to have emerged over the past year or so do seem to be pushing her into the file marked Escaped Julia Davis character. It was Hannah who came up with the OG brand name when she took what would turn out to be the momentous decision to press release her father's walk to the local paper. We'll call you Captain Tom, she said, according to her own account. You can't do that, her father replied, again according to her own account. I retired in 1945. 
he would end up being called Captain Tom. As for the import of this still-developing story, nothing should take away from the old man's achievement, nor his sweet grace amid the madness that soon engulfed him. But the way the story has progressed has upset the delicate balance between naivety and cynicism in many people. On the one hand, the new information might give pause to those who greeted every raised eyebrow about the mushrooming phenomenon with a defiant, don't be so cynical. On the other, I'm afraid it will certainly lead to further adoptions of a view you hear and read depressingly often these days. That all charities are a racket, and that's why the person declaring they're a racket doesn't give any money to charity. In the end, though, perhaps the reason it will run and run is that it so neatly combines the British people's equal favourite types of poppy, the ones worn for Remembrance Day and the tall ones that need cutting down. That was The Heat Is On, the Captain Tom Foundation Spa Complex and It's Not Coming From The Indoor Pool by Marina Hyde Read by Emma Stannard Next, if Peaky Blinders made the Irish actor Killian Murphy a household name, will Christopher Nolan's nuclear blockbuster send him into the stratosphere? Here, he talks with Charlotte Edwards about extreme weight loss, hating school, and why his next character won't be a smoker. Read by Cormac Duval. Killian Murphy is struggling with what he can and can't say about his title role in Oppenheimer, the latest Christopher Nolan epic. Such is the secrecy surrounding this film. Murphy is under strict instructions not to talk about the content, which is awkward when you've flown to his home in Ireland to interview him specifically about playing the physicist who oversaw the creation of the atomic bomb, later detonated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's not clear who issued these instructions. Nolan, the studio, the US government. All I know is that as well as Murphy being gagged by hefty NDAs, I am not allowed to see it. Bit unfortunate, he concedes. So yes, here we sit in an empty upstairs room of a restaurant near his house in Monkstown, Dublin, working out how to do this. The room is dark, the sun shining through a solitary velux, lighting his features like a Jericho. The only background noise is the low hum of a wine refrigerator. Murphy loads interviews, Looks visibly tortured at points, but he relaxes when I ask him if he's pleased with Oppenheimer. I am, yeah, he says. I don't like watching myself. It's like, oh, fucking hell. But it's an extraordinary piece of work. Very provocative and powerful. It feels sometimes like a biopic, sometimes like a thriller, sometimes like a horror. It's going to knock people out, he adds. What Nolan does with film, it fucks you up a little bit. Nolan wouldn't disagree. The director recently told Wired magazine that some of those who'd seen it were left absolutely devastated. They can't speak. Which sounds like a bad thing, but is related perhaps to the thought of 214,000 Japanese people, overwhelmingly civilians, who lost their lives when the bombs were dropped. Kai Bird, the historian who co-authored American Prometheus, The 2008 biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, upon which the film is based, said he was still emotionally recovering from seeing the film, clarifying that it was a stunning artistic achievement. Murphy's portrayal is said to be astonishing, 
Oscar-worthy is the buzz. This is not unbelievable. While Hollywood might know him as a leading man, this quietly intense actor has long been celebrated in the UK and Ireland, most notably for his nine-year stint as Tommy Shelby in Peaky Blinders. When he first appeared in our screens, looking like a Renaissance painting of St. Sebastian, chiselled head contrasting with translucent blue eyes, it was impossible not to be distracted. He appeared first on stage in Enda Walsh's Disco Pigs, then the screen adaptation, then 28 Days Later, Intermission, Ken Loach's The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Previous collaborations with Nolan include the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception and Dunkirk. Significant milestones in my career, he says, adding that Nolan might be the perfect director. It was Nolan's wife, the producer Emma Thomas, who called Murphy one afternoon at the home he shares with his wife, artist Yvonne McGuinness and two teenage sons. Nolan doesn't actually have a telephone or an email or computer for that matter. He's the most analogue individual you could possibly encounter. So Emma said Chris would like a word and passed the receiver. Then the director came on the line. Killian, I'd love you to play the lead in this new thing, he said. Murphy tries to recreate his response to this news. I was lost for words, but thrilled, like beyond thrilled. It is characteristic of Murphy that the modulation of his voice barely changes as he expresses this. He was so stunned he had to sit down. Your mind explodes. In the absence of the three-hour feature, I scrutinise Oppenheimer's three-minute trailer. It's a rush of snapshots against the crackling of a Geiger counter. There's Murphy, short back and sides, lifting 1940s eye goggles, blue and red atoms coming at him fast, orange light, white light, blackout. Silence. Massive explosion against the backdrop of space. Overlaid is Murphy's narration. We're in a race against the Nazis, and I know what it means, if the Nazis have a bomb. There's Matt Damon looking porky as Army General Leslie Groves, director of the Manhattan Project. They have a 12-month head start. Murphy, pointing with cigarette, 18. He's put back on some of the weight he lost for the part, I'm relieved to see. His skin isn't quite so taut over his skull and there are freckles over those eagle wing cheekbones. He was determined to nail the scientist's silhouette with the pork pie hat and the pipe, testing himself to see how little he could eat. You become competitive with yourself a little bit, which is not healthy. I don't advise it. He won't say how many kilograms he lost or what food the nutritionist told him to cut out. NDA? Ah, no. I don't want it to be. Killian lost X weight for the part. Then again, the hurtling speed at which Nolan worked, crisscrossing the US, made it easy to skip meals. Murphy began to forget about food in the same way he began to forget about sleep. It's like you're on this fucking train that's just bombing. It's bang, 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 bang. You sleep for a few hours, get up, bang it again. I was running on crazy energy. I went over a threshold to where I was not worrying about food or anything. I was so in it. A state of hyper. He gropes for the word. Hyper something. But it was good because the character was like that. He never ate. Oppenheimer subsisted on little more than Chesterfield cigarettes and double-strength martinis, rims dipped in lime. Cigarettes and pipes, he would alternate between the two. That's what did it for him in the end. Murphy adds, 
a nod to the scientist's death from cancer in 1967. I've smoked so many fake cigarettes for Peaky and this. My next character will not be a smoker. They can't be good for you. Even herbal cigarettes have health warnings now. I raise method acting and Murphy tilts his head and frowns. Method acting is a sort of... No, he says, firm but with a half smile. Oppenheimer had many defining characteristics, not least walking on the balls of his feet and a vocal tick that sounded like nim, nim, nim. But Murphy didn't want to do an impression. Nolan was obsessed with the Brillo texture hair, so they spent a long time working on hair. And the voice. The real question for Murphy was what combination, ambition, madness, delusion, deep hatred of the Nazi regime, allowed this theoretical physicist to agree to an experiment he knew could obliterate humankind. He was dancing between the raindrops morally. He was complex, contradictory, polymathic, incredibly attractive, intellectually and charismatic, but, he decides, ultimately unknowable. Listen, it's not like a spoiler, he says, checking himself before he leans in. But there are incidents in his early life that were quite worrying very erratic. They're in the film and the book, he steers. I suspect he is referring to Oppenheimer's postgrad at Cambridge in 1926, when he placed a poisoned apple on the desk of a tutor towards whom he harboured complicated feelings of inadequacy and jealousy. Arguably, this was attempted murder, but Oppenheimer's rich New York parents rushed in to bundle him into psychoanalysis. He was diagnosed with dementia precox, a term describing symptoms associated with schizophrenia. Murphy likes these complex characters. They're his meat. People that don't necessarily follow the yawn, traditional, transformative arc of storytelling. Not villains, exactly, although he's played a few, including Scarecrow in Dark Knight and Jackson Ripner in Red Eye. Villains are good if they're well-written, but if it's one note or a trope, then they're dull. He likes a script to stretch leisurely into all corners of the human condition. All the shades. At the same time, you have to understand his exceptional ability to portray interiority, physically manifesting intense human emotion without a word, radiating fierce, consuming energy, which he does today, actually, when I stray off track. Although Nolan is usually, shall we say, antiseptic in his approach to romance, Oppenheimer represents a significant shift. He told Wired, The love story aspect is as strong as I've ever done. It features prolonged nudity for Murphy in Florence Pugh, who plays Oppenheimer's ex-fiancée, as well as sex, and there are complicated scenes with Emily Blunt, who plays his wife, that were pretty heavy. Murphy turns coy, I'm under strict instructions not to give away anything. He asks if I've heard of chemistry tests. They put two actors in a room to see if there's any spark, and of all the producers and director at a table watching. I don't know what metric they use, and it seems so outrageously silly but sometimes you get a chemistry and nobody knows why. This is a roundabout way of saying his scenes with Blunt and Pugh conjure this magic. His established bond with Blunt, they co-starred in A Quiet Place too, meant the audience gets something for free, he says. You can be immediately vulnerable and open and try stuff. There were moments where I remember saying, I couldn't have done that if it wasn't with you. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Charlotte Edwards' interview with Killian Murphy. Murphy, aged 47, grew up the eldest of four in Cork. His father was a civil servant, his mother a French teacher. They were a middle-class family, musical. His father can pick up any instrument, his brother played piano, and they regularly got stuck into traditional Irish sessions. Bookshelves were stuffed with literature, the radio often on, the shitty TV set not so much. Home life was busy, but his parents taught him French and Irish and sent him to an all-boys academic, rugby-playing private school. I got all the education, he says dryly. The story of how much he disliked the presentation Brothers College, the hard-drinking masculine emphasis, how he found solace playing guitar in a band, is much rehearsed, and he says today he doesn't want to slag the school off. I hear it's great now. Something about this experience seems nonetheless unsettling. He had one friend who was still his best friend, so I wasn't like an outcast. He played rugby for the first couple of years, but abandoned it because everyone was all of a sudden towering over me. Was it an unhappy time? He shifts. It was okay. I was a bit of a messer, like I'd get in trouble and say nothing. It wasn't the ideal school for me. He enrolled in and dropped out of a law degree at University College Cork, which created some friction with his parents. When I ask if his own sons will go to university in Dublin, he says, whatever they want. He continued with the band, his first creative love, but the one that got away. When they were offered a contract with Acid Jazz Records, he turned it down for a number of reasons, he says. Crucially, that he didn't feel good enough. He still writes and plays at home, but no, you won't be hearing any of his recordings, ever, he says. It's a funny thing talking to Murphy. He's at once garrulous on the craft or literature or ideas and reticent, pretty much anything else. I sense in previous interviews that he skates over issues close to his heart, such as the expression of emotion in Ireland and the need to teach empathy in schools. But when I try to drill into these topics, get to the root, he clams shut, emitting energy like a nuclear reactor. Later, in a different context, he will tell me a truth. I'm stubborn and lacking in confidence, which is a terrible combination. I don't want to put anything out that I don't think is excellent. But he clearly hates the pantomime of publicity, asking why I'm returning to certain topics and repeating lines I've read elsewhere. 
I can almost see him at home with his views towards the Irish Sea, complaining to his wife as they tuck into supper. Another one, asking the same fucking questions. If he could get out of going to Cannes, of standing on red carpets, dressed as his habit for a funeral, hair shellacked, hands in pockets, if he could turn his back and the coloured foam mics thrust in his face, he would. He really would. No, it dawns on him now. There's something even worse than the red carpet. There's the talk show rounds. The very word talk show comes out of him like a pain from his ribcage, as if the parceling out of amuse-bouche anecdotes, offering them up to the forced laughter of that false god of show business, the studio audience, is in itself the most cheapening experience known to mankind. I do them because you're contractually obliged to. I just endure them. I've always found it difficult. I've said this so many, many times. Then there's the double wince of realising that yes, he's done it again. He's laid into the industry that feeds him. His hands raise slowly in surrender. I want to just caveat this by saying I'm so privileged. I'm so happy to be doing what I love. I'm really lucky. But I don't enjoy the personality side of being an actor. I don't understand why I should be entertaining and scintillating on a talk show. I don't know why all of a sudden that's expected of me. Why? There's an awkward silence. I say that he reminds me of Naomi Osaka, the tennis player who refused to talk to journalists after the French Open in 2021. He says he feels 100% sympathy with her, because why should she have to perform? Then he relents. But I get it. I get it's a kind of ecosystem where the film feeds the publicity, which feeds the talk shows, which goes back and feeds the film. So like, that's how it works. I suppose I'm just not good at it. At interviews, at this stuff, he gestures at me. He says after he leaves me today, he'll be going down the stairs thinking of all the things he said and worrying if it's come across all wrong. Do you know what Sam Beckett said? I've no views to inter. I love that. That should be the interview. We return to his art. The tension falls away and he's back to his charming self, charged air evaporating. Since Oppenheimer, he's also wrapped small things like these. An adaptation of Claire Keegan's brilliant novella set in 1985, in a small Irish town on the edge of which is a convent and laundry. Murphy is a huge fan of Keegan. He remembers reading her 2010 novel Foster on a train and having to pull his hoodie over his face because he was crying so hard. Anyway, he'd wanted to work with the Peaky Blinders director, Tim Melons, and they were throwing ideas around in his sitting room when Murphy's wife suggested small things. No, there's no way, Murphy said. That's going to be gone already. But when he called the agent, he found it was available. I went, no, you've got to be fucking kidding. Murphy pitched the idea to Matt Damon, who has set up a studio with Ben Affleck. From there, it all just happened really quickly. Murphy plays Bill Furlong, who, funnily enough, is a man of few words. Keegan's light-touch writing is everything he loves in art. The sense that you're not being bashed over the head by an idea. That's how he tries to act, he adds. I'm always trying to cut lines and scenes, because I feel like you can transmit it. Like when you see a person on a train thinking, or driving a car, and you are purely observing someone and feeling the energy that is vibrating from them. That's the sort of acting I love. In a lot of film and television, they want to cut those bits to go to the action. I like films that pose the big questions and then leave it to the audience. 
Perhaps this is at the heart of his reticence in interviews, that he doesn't feel the need to explain. He still finds it nuts that the last of the Magdalene laundries closed in 1996, that it was illegal to buy condoms in Ireland until 1985, that divorce was made legal only in 1996. He remembers vividly thousands of people still going to see moving statues in Cork when he was growing up. Crazy, but like how far the country has come since then. We're so socially advanced now compared with where we were. But you must look back. And art is a better way of doing that than reading all these reports into the laundries. Afterwards, he emails me. The nation is actually dealing with an unresolved collective trauma. Who knows how long this will take to heal. But I feel strongly that art, film and literature can help with that process. It's a kinder and gentler sort of therapy. I hope that our movie can help with that in its own little way. Because he's a nice man, because he doesn't want me to feel bad about our encounter, and because he's generous and hospitable, Murphy finishes by telling me some of the best places to visit in Ireland. He and his family are staying here for the summer. They've had it with the air travel, and his hometown of Cork is only a couple of hours away. He supplies me with other recommendations. A great book he's just read, Brian, by Jeremy Cooper. Oh, and there's the Francis Bacon studio exhibition I should catch on my way out. But before I go, what has he learned from playing Oppenheimer? Foremost, he says, that scientists think differently. He knew this already from playing physicist Robert Kappa in Danny Boyle's Sunshine, released in 2007, and hanging out in CERN, home of the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, for research. I had dinner with all these geniuses. I'll never understand quantum mechanics, but I was interested in what science does to their perspective. He sought their opinions on subjects that matter. Love, politics, our place in the universe, infinity or whatever the fuck. Because they have a completely different way of taking in information than we do. I remember one scientist saying, I don't believe in love. It's a biological phenomenon. The exchange of hormones between the female and the male. That's all. Love is a nonsense. Murphy taps the table with his hand. I couldn't go along with that, obviously. That was Killian Murphy on Oppenheimer, Sex Scenes and Self-Doubt. I'm Stubborn and Lacking in Confidence, a Terrible Combination. By Charlotte Edwards and read by Cormac Duval. Finally, The Joint, The Booze Free and The Micro. It's wedding season, but not as you know it. As interest rates remain on shaky ground, many people are seeking ever more creative ways to save money. Here, five couples tell Daisy Schofield how they've economised on the big day. Read by Emma Stannard. The Dry Wedding With sober curiosity on the rise, a growing number of couples are opting to leave alcohol off the menu at their weddings. Online wedding planner Hitch's National Wedding Survey shows an increase in dry weddings in the UK last year, with 11% of couples choosing to host booze-free big days in 2022, compared with 10% in 2021. Meanwhile, TikTok is full of ideas for wedding mocktails. Paul, age 32, and Becky, age 29, both from Coventry, decided to throw a dry wedding last summer, asking guests not to bring any alcohol with them. 
some struggled to hide their disappointment when they were told of this in advance, despite knowing that neither Paul nor Becky drink. We have various friends who would normally be partying until 4am and they warned that our party would be over very quickly, says Paul. In the end, the wedding lasted till 1am, which Becky and Paul were very happy with. While many guests said they were pleased to have been able to drive home afterwards and save on accommodation. According to new research, British people spend an average of £604 to attend a wedding, with accommodation being the most costly factor. Other guests just said it was really nice to have such a chill event without any worry of the party going over the edge and getting messy or dramatic, says Paul. Hosting a dry wedding often means having to think carefully about the entertainment, as guests may not be in the mood for dancing without Dutch courage. Paul and Becky opted to have a Kaylee, because as Paul puts it, the beauty of a Kaylee is that the caller is telling you exactly where to go and what to do, which may help loosen up sober guests. Karaoke was less of a success, he says, with several people deciding to up and leave at that point. Having a dry event led to big savings, with the whole wedding coming to £2,600. At the end of March 2023, we completed the purchase of our first home, says Paul. We can't ignore the generational wealth that made it more possible for us, but it certainly didn't hurt that we barely dipped into our savings in order to fund the wedding. The micro-wedding Micro-weddings have been steadily growing in popularity since the pandemic made smaller ceremonies a necessity. But while the idea of an intimate ceremony may appeal to many, in practice, slimming down the guest list is often no easy feat. This was something Lucy, aged 23, from Sheffield, had to contend with when she organised a ceremony in the Lake District with just 10 guests earlier this year. For Lucy and her partner, cost was a big factor in their decision to limit the guest list. We've never seen the point of spending so much money on a single day, she says. On top of this, Lucy says she has suffered from social anxiety in the past, while her husband has never been a fan of being the centre of attention. For this reason, he didn't give a speech, even in front of such a small group. For Lucy, a smaller wedding allowed her to make the most of the day with the people you love the most. The couple held two different activities on the day, which would not have been possible with more guests. More is more when it comes to the entertainment. It meant that the day was more full and fun, she says. But having a limited number of guests poses its own problems. Her uncle was hurt not to be invited, as was one of her friends, for whom she had been a bridesmaid. Lucy relented eventually and invited her uncle but only after it sparked a family drama. As for the friend, I should have invited her, says Lucy. After the initial quarrel, they're friends again. We are both adults and a wedding isn't worth throwing a decade-old friendship away over, she says. Originally, Lucy had planned to elope with no guests. There were times I wish we had, she says, reflecting on the tensions it caused with family and friends. Although with hindsight, I'm glad we had our day the way we did. My advice to anyone planning a micro-wedding would be to make sure all the guests know right from the start that it is a small wedding only and there is no wriggle room or compromise on guest numbers, she says. The Group Effort Wedding 
In 2023, getting married is £1,385 more expensive than it was a year ago, as inflation pushes up wedding costs. It has left many couples who are looking to tie the knot in a difficult position. As the cost of living crisis worsens, people are increasingly turning to friends and family to help with the costs, materials and logistics of staging their wedding. When Tanya Antonio, aged 39, and her husband Kevin, both from Swindon, got engaged last year, they were struggling with rising bills. Aware of the couple's situation, friends and family rallied to throw the perfect day for them in lieu of giving presents. They knew we were in a tight spot, but also this was their way of giving a gift to us, says Tanya. The couple hired a village hall so they could provide the food and drink themselves. Kevin's aunt handled the food, waking up at 5am on the morning of the wedding to prepare a variety of Caribbean dishes for the guests, a nod to where Kevin's family is from. Later on, other guests helped out with the catering, serving the food and drink. One guest who works as a venue dresser provided the chair covers, centrepieces, sashes, tablecloths and runners. Two guests took charge of decorating the hall, while another offered to do the cake. It made it more meaningful that it was a joint effort, says Tanya. The wedding cost £2,500. Having family do the food and cake saved a lot of money that we wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise. It was a brilliant day, better than we imagined it would be. The crowdfunded wedding Asking guests and strangers to donate to the cost of getting married is controversial but it has become increasingly common as the cost of living crisis bites. From 2021 to 2022, GoFundMe saw a 24% increase in fundraisers set up in their newlyweds category, which includes couples fundraising for their weddings and honeymoons. Martin, age 46, and Emma, age 39, both from Dorchester, recently set up a GoFundMe page for their wedding, which is taking place later this year. It reads, We've been unable to save much at all in the 18 months we've been engaged. We can't wait to start a new life together as husband and wife. If you feel you can help even a little, it would be really appreciated. The couple, who are hoping to raise £3,743, we did a fair bit of research on the cost of things plus a small contingency. It didn't feel right rounding it up to £4,000, more than we really need and we hated the idea of raising £3,500 and being short. Say they were nervous to publish the fundraiser. It feels a bit weird basically asking friends, family and random people to donate, says Emma. It's a nice day out for people, but let's face it, it's our big day, so can we expect other people to bend over and pay for it? Despite these anxieties, Martin and Emma have been sharing the page on social media. It was something we did out of necessity, trying to think of ways to actually afford the wedding, says Martin. While both admit that the response to the GoFundMe so far has been fairly muted, they have only raised about £120, they're hopeful that they'll receive more donations closer to the big day. And it has prompted guests who say they can't or would prefer not to donate to offer to lend a hand in other ways. Since the fundraiser launched, one guest has said they will sing at the wedding free of charge, while another friend has offered to help with the food. It's a really difficult thing to do, says Emma of the GoFundMe. 
but to have people come back and want to help in some way is really special. The couple believe that guests donating to the cost of weddings rather than giving gifts should become normalised. This way the money has gone to something real that guests enjoy too, Emma says, instead of something that's going to sit in a cupboard for a few years. The double wedding Weddings are usually about all eyes on one couple, but it doesn't always need to be this way. Earlier this year, David, age 41, and Nathan, age 32, both from County Down, held a double wedding, a single marriage ceremony and reception for two couples, after initially planning a smaller wedding for just the two of them. It was Nathan's mother who suggested the couple share the event with Nathan's brother Daryl and his fiancée Renee, while they were visiting the UK from their home in Australia. The idea of sharing the spotlight appealed to Nathan and David. We wanted something low-key to start with, because we didn't really like all eyes being on us, says David. Everything was shared, from the photos, there were ones of the couple on their own too, to the vows and even the cake, which had David and Nathan's initials on one side and Daryl and Renee's on the other. The couples did their vows one after the other, with David and Nathan going first. The only thing that wasn't shared was walking down the aisle. While David and Nathan chose to, Renee and Daryl opted not to. As Renee and Daryl live in Australia, David was only able to meet them two weeks before the wedding, so planning it together was always bound to be risky. One disagreement took place over the colour of the dresses Daryl and Renee's two young girls would wear. I was very much about doing a green, white and gold wedding, says David, and they wanted their two children to wear pink dresses. After an awkward back and forth, the couples eventually settled on white. You have to be willing to compromise, says David. If you're someone who has a picture of a perfect wedding day in your head, a double wedding probably isn't for you. Ultimately, sharing their wedding meant David, Nathan, Daryl and Renee could afford to rent a house for all 29 guests to stay together in and enjoy Northern Ireland for a couple of days after the celebration. It helped bring the two couples together too. We got to know each other very well and it was a bonding experience. That was Even the Cake Was Shared. How Can Couples Make Their Weddings Cheaper? By Daisy Schofield. Read by Emma Stannard. Before you go, we wanted to tell you a little bit about Guardian Masterclasses. They say that everyone has a book in them, but getting it out into the world is another thing. Why not make it happen this year with Guardian Masterclasses? Our online writers retreat starting 24th of July is packed with live workshops and support from some of the biggest names in literary fiction. Find out more and get 10% off by entering the code WRITERS10, all lowercase, at theguardian.com forward slash retreat dash masterclass. What will you write this summer? That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Emma Stannard and Cormac Duval and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.